Amen. Amen. Do you have a seat? And, and uh, would you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40? And uh, you'll find that on page 723. So we're following over these four Sundays the, the readings that are um, being read around the world, actually, um, across plenty of different denominations, which are set for these four Sundays of Advent. And each of these Sundays, for the main service, there will be um, a set psalm and a set Old Testament reading and a gospel reading and a reading from uh, one of the letters or the epistles in the New Testament. And uh, as with last week, so with this, um, I've chosen to, to preach from one of the Old Testament lessons, which is Isaiah chapter 40. Um, and uh, if you are even vaguely familiar with uh, the Handel's Messiah, these are words that will just set you off um, uh, thinking about music. You'll have the music playing um, in your head as I read them out. Comfort, comfort my people. Before I read the reading, which is Isaiah chapter 40, the first 11 verses, it's worth just setting a little bit of context, because these words, if you read that Isaiah as a book, come completely out of the blue. Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 are as a, almost without hope. That's not entirely true. There are flashes and glimpses here and there. But for the most part, Isaiah, who was one of God's prophets five, six hundred years before uh, the birth of Christ, spends the first 39 chapters of, or at least what we call the first 39 chapters, really saying to them, you've messed up. You have, have blown it. You have not done the job that God gave you to do. You've not been the people God made you to be. You've not taken what God has given you. And it's not just you haven't made the most of it. You have virtually destroyed what God has given you. You remember over these last few weeks of talking about God's covenant, we've talked about the way in which when God makes, uh, actually in several places in the Old and New Testament, this, this covenant towards us, that's a public binding declaration of love towards us, a public binding declaration of love that looks for response. That's what covenant is. It's not just one way. It looks for response. When God makes his covenant, he makes it with a people, not just individuals. And in the Old Testament, his Old Testament people, ancient Israel, he, he gathers together and he says, look, I'm going to be your God and you are going to be my people. And, and in being my people, you have one job to do, which is simply to love me back. So that's all there is to do it. I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a king. I'm going to give you a temple. I'm going to give you my law so that you know how to live out a life that is loving me back. And, and by doing that, you are going to be a light to the Gentiles. In other words, this isn't just for you. This is so that the whole world can know the love of God. And the problem is that God's prophets, those who speak God's words on God's behalf to God's people, have to get time and again say, do you know, if you look back at your past, you've blown it again and again and again. Those, that, that, those great gifts God gave you as grace, as unmerited favour, you put on like a badge of pride to say, hey, aren't we great? And if you look at your present, you'll see that the way you're living now doesn't reflect God and his glory and his love. It reflects you. And if you look to the future, trouble's coming. Time and again, they have to warn God's people. If you carry on like this, there are consequences because if you live life with your back towards God, you're living life the opposite to how God made you to live it. So Isaiah 1 through 39 is Isaiah saying again and again, watch out, watch out. You're going to end up in exile, which they do. You're going to end up losing most of what it is to the people of God, which, it, which they do. 
watch out. And then seemingly out of nowhere, Isaiah 40, these beautiful words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every mountain shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places are plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So says the word of God. Um, uh, quite a few years ago now, we were for a few days in Washington, D.C. for a, some holiday. And we, the place that we were staying was, I don't know, a mile or two outside of the city centre. And so we would often just walk from it um, or we'd get a metro and, and then walk um, towards the mall and to go and see the, the, uh, the museums and to go and see the White House, wherever it is we were going that day. And there was one day where things looked a bit different. There were a lot more police around for a start, and yet it didn't feel like there was trouble brewing. There were police on horseback, there were police on uh, motorcycles, uh, there were plenty of police cars, but there were also um, piles and piles that were gradually being put out of um, barriers, you know, the sort of barriers you put along the side of a road when there's a great crowd expected. And as the day went on, those barriers were all lined down this route, and eventually there was a real crowd beginning to grow. Uh, I hadn't noticed, um, but actually there was a great kerfuffle in Washington, D.C., because that very day, uh, the Pope was visiting town, and people were incredibly excited. There were people, I don't know how many deep, uh, wanting to actually catch a glimpse of the Pope-mobile uh, going past, and, uh, and there were people outside their churches with banners, and there were, there were bands playing, and there were monks and nuns wandering around the place, and there, there, was, there was a real sort of festival and carnival atmosphere, and, and we saw the Pope. Uh, that wasn't the reason we were in Washington, D.C., but we happened to be there, and there he went. It has to be said that, was it the same day or the day after? There was another visitor to Washington, D.C. I thought a bit sorry for him, really, because um, it was Gordon Brown um, uh, when he was Prime Minister. And he visited Washington, D.C., and nobody really noticed. Um, it must have been a bit galling, really. Uh, he, he's, you know, he came into Washington, D.C., nobody noticed in the papers particularly. It probably was below the fold, five or six pages in. Uh, there was no big sort of photo op at the White House. He, you know, it, 
the preparations couldn't have been more different. Preparations for a great uh, figure of leadership or celebrity or whatever, however you see him, uh, and the figure for just an ordinary politician. The preparations you make tell you a huge amount about what you think of the person who's coming. The interesting thing about these verses, verses 3 to 5 of this little piece in Isaiah, is that they mirror, almost word for word in places, um, an inscription found from exactly this area um, in, in Babylonia, which is where Isaiah was at the time, or is where God's people were um, uh, in exile. And that inscription describes preparations that are to be made for the Babylonian king when he comes to visit a part of his um, country that he hasn't been to, either at all or for many, many years. Of course, in the days before rail travel and road travel and air travel, with a big empire, uh, an emperor might not ever visit a part of his empire. But if he did, it might have been many, many decades since any leader had visited. So when they did, the preparations were enormous. Not only did you have to bring the crowds out and have a great procession, but you actually had to get the roads ready. They were told, you are to make the roads straight for the emperor who's coming. You are to bridge any valleys. You are to find safe passages through the mountains. You are to to make sure that there is a a smooth pass across the, the, the rough ground. You are to cut down the vegetation. You are to make ready for the coming king. Major earthworks, major road repair schemes, simply for the visit of a king. And Isaiah is saying to God's people, there's a king coming. But he's saying, it's not just a king, it's the king. Because he doesn't just say, will you build a bridge across some valleys? Will you find a way through the mountains? Listen to what he does say. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley should be raised up. Every mountain in the hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places are plain. This isn't about sort of the land staying as it is and finding a way through it. This is about everything changing because the king of all kings is coming to visit his people. And when the king of kings comes to visit his people, everything changes. Verse five, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people together will see it. Not just you, says Isaiah, not just God's covenant people, ancient Israel, not just you, but the Gentiles too. All humankind will see it. That was their great vision of what it was meant to be at the end of times, that all people everywhere would know the glory of God, would know his love for them, would know it was for them. Now, that sounds like good news. Except if you were a member of God's people back then, you would have winced at the prospect In fact, if you'd been sensible, you'd have run and hidden. Because the prophets, Isaiah himself, had spent the previous how many decades telling them, actually, you should be pretty careful about asking for God to show up. Because you've spent your lives living with your back turned to him. You are so frail in your attempt to do anything good with your lives. You're so incapable of being selfless. You're so wrapped up in your own sin say the prophets, that actually nobody can see God's love in and through you. They simply see you. So when God the king comes, what is he going to do? One of the prophets says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A voice says, verse 6, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? 
All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. God simply could just blow on us. We are so frail, so weak, so incapable of standing on our own two feet, morally and spiritually and in our character, that one breath of God, and it's like grass being blown away. It's like the, the, the straw, the hay, just being blown away, scattered. The grass withers and the flower fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass, verse 8. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. It's not good news, it would sound bad news. And yet Isaiah has started this chapter, the bit of this book that we've called chapter 40, with comfort, comfort comfort my people how is it comfort to know that the god of all heaven and earth the king of all kings the one who is perfect beyond any imagining the one who gave us just one thing to do simply to respond by loving him back how is that good news that he's coming well it's good news because he's going to come not just as a king but as a shepherd king Verse 9, you who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. Well, if it just stopped there, that's a fearful prospect. But then he says, see, his reward is with him. His recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The shepherd king. Do you remember when we've been talking about the covenant, we've said that that the covenant in the Old Testament never failed because God couldn't keep his side of the covenant up. It was damaged because we simply could not keep our side of the covenant up because we found it so hard to respond, to set our hearts on him. We couldn't live the life we were meant to live, and therefore we were faced with a death that we simply could not face, and we could not win this life with God everlasting. And remember, we were saying over the last few weeks that what we find in the New Testament is that the fulfilment of the covenant, this new covenant, isn't that God has changed, he still makes this public binding declaration of love towards us he still says to you and says to me I have loved you with an everlasting love I am your God and you will be my people he still says all of that nothing has changed from God's side but that God steps round to our side of the table and that God says I myself will live the life that you couldn't live of perfect obedience and love And therefore, I will be able to die the death you cannot face on your own. Because rather than death destroying me, I will destroy death. And so I will buy for you that life that you cannot gain for yourselves. And the one who comes to do that is precisely the shepherd king, promised by Isaiah. Jesus, born in the town of the shepherd king, King David. Jesus, born in Bethlehem. King David's home, the boy shepherd who became the king of Israel. Here is Jesus, born there, of David's line. Here is the infant child 
to whom the shepherds are the first to be called and before whom the three wise travellers put their kingly gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Fit for a king, not for a toddler. Here is the one who is God, King of kings and Lord of lords, the one before whom a voice cries in the desert, prepare a way for the Lord. That was John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin's job. Prepare the way. Prepare your hearts. And here's the shepherd king, born. To live the life we could not live, that life of perfect obedience, to die the death we could not face alone, and therefore to win for us new life. And finally, these words of the first two verses begin to make sense. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. You see, there was this cycle of boom and bust. God's people, ancient Israel, kept beginning to make progress and then they'd get a bit full of themselves and they'd crash and God would have to bring them back to their senses. And time and again, uh, through, through enemy, through opposition, through exile, God had to bring them to their senses. But time and again, he said to them, do you know, and the psalmist says this explicitly, you simply can't pay for your own sin because it would destroy you. That's a death you cannot face on your own. You cannot do this for yourself. So how can Isaiah say your sins have been paid for double? That's not fair. Nobody should have to pay double for their sin. But the point that Isaiah is dimly seeing and that we see perfected in Jesus is that for God, it is not enough simply to forgive you and to forgive me. That's paying singly for our sin. The paying double is that God not only forgives us, he restores us. He doesn't just pardon us, he accepts us. He doesn't just get us off the hook, if you like. He loves us. If you were put away in prison for many years for something terrible that you'd done wrong, it would be one thing to be released from prison having paid your debt. And yet you would go through the rest of your life with this hanging over you. People would know that's what you'd done. People would still treat you that way. You would still know in your heart that you did those things. Your debt would be paid singly, but you wouldn't be restored or accepted in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus. Jesus not only dies to forgive us, he lives that perfect life on our behalf that we cannot live and restores us. It's the picture of the prodigal son where not only does the father not beat his son black and blue as that culture would have expected him to, he doesn't just forgive the prodigal son when he comes home, he runs down the road towards him, he throws his arms around him and he puts a cloak on him and sandals on his feet and a ring on his finger and he has a party. He doesn't just forgive him and say, well, look, let's not speak any more about it. And it still hovers like a black cloud over his prodigal son's head. No, he wipes it away. He wraps him in his arms of love and he says, you were dead and now you're alive. Christmas is about God coming as the shepherd king. God not just forgiving us, pardoning us with mercy, but God in Christ living the life that we could not live so that he can 
love us in grace so that he can accept us. One final verse for you to just chew over. Paul writes in the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, he says this. He said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, in other words, to forgive us, that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, we don't just get forgiven, we get made righteous, we get put right in God's eyes because the life that Jesus lives, that I couldn't live, that life of perfect love and obedience, he imputes to me. He counts it towards me. He doesn't just pay off my debt. He pours great wealth into my account. He loves me. Not just mercy, but grace. Not just pardon, but complete restoration. Not just paying singly for my debt and my sin. He pays double. That's the shepherd king. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's why actually celebrating communion in the midst of Advent and in the midst of Christmas is exactly what we should be doing because this is what the shepherd king came to do, to live the life I could not live, to die the death I cannot face on my own and therefore to buy me a new life that was beyond me. And so we come to the communion table. We come knowing that this Jesus, this shepherd king, gave up his life for me. We come to receive with hands uh, open wide and with hearts open for his love. Just as we come towards the table, let's be still for a moment.